If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of the word. We'll be reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must all must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is where the word of the Lord, let us pray together. Gracious Father, I do pray that your spirit would be at work among us, that you would give us attentive minds and open hearts to receive the things that you have to give us this day in your word. May we be blessed upon hearing and receive it in faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when I think back to my school experience as a child, I remember every time I was given a writing assignment, agonizing over choosing a topic. I don't know if this is a common experience, but it's still a struggle that I have today. However, when I was considering what text I would preach from this morning, there was a passage from Paul that I've not been able to shake from my mind for the past few weeks. It was his exhortation to the church at Colossae to set your mind on things above. These words from the third chapter of Colossians struck me a couple weeks ago. It was actually the week of all the tumultuous events taking place in Washington, D.C. And as I was going through my morning Bible reading, I was seriously convicted by these words and how much I had let my thoughts been caught up in the events of the day. So as I meditated on this, I felt the call to set my mind on Christ. And as I considered this experience and the way the, these words struck me on that day, 
I thought that I'm certainly not alone in needing to receive this call. There's so many things in this moment that are competing for our attention. We have everything around the election and the heated aftermath and the newly installed president. We have disagreements with government responses to a multitude of situations, whether it's COVID or homelessness or riots. There are some who fear COVID. There are some who fear collapsed economy. Then there are also the strained relationships that are emerging from the different opinions about all of these things. And even those of you who may have not been caught up in all of this, maybe you just turn off the news and checked out, there's still all the temptations we face every day. Just the stresses and worries of the day, finances, friends, the future. There is so much that competes for our attention. So this morning, I invite us all to heed the call to set our minds on things above. That is, on Christ. To consider the riches that we have in him and the appropriate response to what we've been given. So this morning, we will be spending our time considering the meaning of Paul's exhortation from Colossians, to set our minds on things above. Specifically, we will be looking at the context in which they're placed to help us understand what Paul actually means by these words. And as we do so, I really believe that it will become clear that when Paul says to set your minds on things above... What he really means is that we need to be so consumed with Christ in our minds and our affections that we experience an inevitable overflow of holy living. Kids, I know it can be difficult to focus in on the sermon Sunday mornings. I have my own children who I work with every week. But if you get nothing else this morning, I want you to know this. This is what I'm talking about. When we spend our time thinking about Jesus, we learn to love him and we learn to love his ways. And when we love Jesus, when we truly love him, when we learn to truly love his ways, we will do those things because we love them. So let us begin this morning by taking a moment to consider the broader context in which this verse takes place before we narrow our focus down to look at the exact words and what Paul actually meant by his exhortation to set your mind on things above. So this verse is actually in, in, so it's chapter 3, verse 2, where we find these words, and it's right in the middle of the book of Colossians. And if it's not in the literal middle, uh, if you counted up the words, it is certainly the literary middle. What I mean by that, if you read the letter, you'll see that the first half of the book is uh, filled with Uh, doctrinal expositions in which Paul addresses some errors confronting the Colossian church. And it's uh, very much Paul taking time to explain and develop uh, doctrines of Christ and of salvation. And there's some pretty dense teaching there uh, regarding some uh, pretty serious doctrinal matters. And if you move on to the second half of the chapter, really chapters 3 and chapter 4, we see that it's very uh, practical in its orientation. Exhortations to put off the old man and put on the new. There's directions of, uh, of holy living in the home, in, in our business, in all that we do. And what we see at the, in the middle of these two parts is this verse, which is calling us, to set our minds on things above, which really pulls these two halves of Paul's letter together. We see this specifically in action in a few ways. 
First of all, Paul is never able to fully disentangle doctrinal uh, uh, explanations from practical uh practical exhortations. We notice that in the first half is he's explaining something he can't help by calling people to live out the consequences of what he's teaching. And so even when the focus is mainly doctrinal, he's always jumping off into practical uh, areas. Likewise, when his main focus is on practical, he can't help but pointing back constantly to those things which he has already explained, those truths which he has already articulated. And so what we see right in the middle here is this call to set our mind on things above, pulling the doctrinal and the practical together. We also see this specifically in chapter 3, verses 5, and then again in 3, verse 12, which both these sections begin with the word therefore. 3, 5 begins a section uh, which starts, therefore put up to death your members, which is a section about putting off our sins, putting off the old man. And so beginning by therefore, it's pointing back to what Paul has already said, to set our minds on things above and to then pointing back further to those things which are above, which he's already explained. In verse 12, we see the same thing, starting with therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And then he goes on to talk about those characteristics which we are to put on. Again, beginning with therefore, pointing back to what he's said earlier, pulling things together in the statement, set your minds on things above. We also see that in this section, Paul is, has responded to some specific errors that have emerged in the Colossian church, specifically those which challenge the sufficiency of Christ. It is interesting, in studying this book, scholars aren't in agreement on what this specific error is. It's not quite the Gnosticism that John was addressing in 1 John or the uh, type of error that Paul was addressing in Galatians, the Judaizers. Rather, it's a blend of various errors that can't be pointed at in one specific movement. We see some paganistic elements with the worship of angels in chapter 2, verse 18. We see some syncretistic elements, which is like a Christ plus whatever other God you want to serve in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. We also see some legalistic elements, uh, in, the, in the kind of uh, ceremonies that Paul is confronting in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But I think this is the very kind of error that we, as Christians, need to be especially attuned to. It's easy to see something like atheism and say, okay, stay away from that. You got, it has a name and it's ni nicely packaged over there. See, Mormonism, okay, that's kind of its own thing. Stay away from that. But it's these subtle shifts in our thinking which creep in and uh, lead us astray from uh, biblical fidelity that we really need to be especially on the watch for. And as we look at each one of these errors that Paul addresses, they have a common factor, which is, as I said, they, they draw us away from the sole and exclusive sufficiency of Christ in all things. And isn't that what all errors do? They draw us away from Christ as the sole focus of our thoughts and of our affections, of our hope and of our worship in some way. So in addition to these errors that Paul uh, explicitly addresses, I do think that there is an uh, implicit error uh, worth addressing, uh, which could be called 
uh, earthly mindedness. Okay. Uh, this uh, is a mindset that, that says, give me a break. Set your minds on things above. We have pressing matters in this world. Our country's falling apart. We need to take action. We don't need to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. Give me a break. This view falsely sets heavenly mindedness against the concerns of the world. And while it is true of some, maybe even many, evangelicals, even the Reformed, that we have oftentimes dismissed our civic duties and had an unbiblical indifference towards the things of the world, this is not what Paul is teaching. Others reject this kind of biblical spirituality, thinking that it's the only way to engage the world is to be by, is by being fully consumed with it. So, let us consider what Paul has to say here. Is he telling us to be of so, so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good? I do not think that is the case. We see some evidence within this very letter. Later on, in, uh, towards the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, we see Paul give some very specific directions to the family. And consider this, the family is the basic building block, the fundamental institution of society. So even within the book of Colossians, I think there can be a good and necessary consequence argument for Christian civic engagement. This is not an otherworldly spirituality that ignores the things of the world, ignores the affairs of the world, and is indifferent. We could turn to other places where Paul very explicitly addresses it, but I think, uh, again, trying to stay within the book of Colossians this morning, we can see that even in his addressing the family is the most fundamental unit of society if we were to go out from there. Okay. So I'd like us to take a moment this morning before we look closer at this text before us. Have you let the affairs of the world unduly consume you? Are politics of the moment causing you anxiety, fear, division, sleeplessness? If not politics and news and culture, how about daily affairs of life? Have you let them consume you and take your mind off of Christ? Don't let these things prevent you from hearing what Paul is calling us to this morning. So now that we've established the context of this passage, centering, seeing that it's the literary center of uh, Paul's letter, pulling together the doctrinal and the practical, and that Paul is addressing errors which detract from the sufficiency of Christ, let's move on to consider how the rest of the book can help us to understand very clearly in concrete terms, what he means by set your minds on things above. So specifically, this is what I hear Paul saying when he says to set our minds on things above. That we are to be so consumed in our minds and affections with Christ, in his person, his ways, and his church, that our lives naturally begin to look more like his. So let's break this down. Set your mind on things above. Let's just begin with simple three words, set your mind. We see in these words that we are to put effort into uh, our intellectual and psych- mental life. 
And even just beginning with the single word set. This is a call to action on your part to set, to, for you to put effort into uh, putting uh, the things of Christ first. You are the active agent. You must act. And the truth is, there's nothing new or profound in this. Set your mind. What, what are we talking about, setting your mind? We're talking about going to church, hearing the proclamation of God's word. We're talking about reading our Bibles, studying them, knowing them. We're talking about surrounding ourselves with people who will actually speak the truth of God into our lives. These are all things that could be entailed in this, in this action of setting our minds on things above. You have to put yourself in a context in which you will be drawn to the things above, the things of Christ. It will not happen on its own. But don't think that in all of this, um, that just doing those things in themselves is sufficient. It's so easy to just slip into the routine. Yep, I read my Bible every morning. Attend church every day. I have my Christian friends. And yet engage in these activities in a haphazard way to not fully engage our minds, not fully engage our hearts, not fully engage ourselves in them, but to just do them and move on. A few things to consider. Have you found that you attend church week in and week out but can't recall a single thing that you've heard from the pulpit for months? How about your Bible reading? You find that you do it in the morning and then not a single word of scripture comes back to mind throughout the rest of the day? Or your fellowship with other believers? You find that never really turns to the things of God, but it's always centered on the things of earth? Take Paul's call to action this morning to set your minds on things above and take the effort needed to actually make this happen. But I also want to encourage you to not think that this is something that you're alone in. Look at the spiritual realities that Paul addresses in chapter 3, verse 1. The very thing, first thing he points us to before he even exhorts us to set our minds on things above is he reminds us that we have been raised with Christ. There is a spiritual reality in our lives, undergirding this call to set your minds on things above. You have been renewed. You have been regenerated. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not alone. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. And don't think that you have been. You have been raised with Christ. There is a supernatural reality in this. It's not something you merely muster up from within yourselves. And not only does Paul remind us that we were raised with Christ, but he also reminds us of where Christ is, that he is sitting at the right hand of God. And what is Christ doing there? Well, those of us who are in the book study right now should know. I realize that was probably from the first or second uh, discussion, but Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Christ is praying for you. So if when you hear the exhortation to put forth this effort and you feel like, I can't, I don't have it, that's a lie. For two reasons. You have been raised with Christ, and even more importantly, Jesus is praying for you. Consider the power of that. Jesus is praying for you right now and interceding 
on your behalf, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So remember, we work, we strive to set our minds on things above, but we are not alone in this. Christ is with us. So set your mind. What's Paul talking about here? might seem obvious, the activities of the mind, but if you have a King James Version with you this morning, you might be a little confused because King James Version reads, set your affections. So which one is it? Is it the mind or is it the affections? I want to say that I don't have to be a master of Greek to understand this problem. Uh, What it really requires is a biblical understanding of what the Bible says when it talks about knowing something. We're talking about the action of the mind. We're talking about knowing. And in the Bible, knowing something is always about more than mere comprehension. It's an intimate, it's to be intimate with the things that you know. So again, I don't have to be a master of Greek. And honestly, uh, my understanding of this has been strongly formed by Pastor Titu. I can recall him teaching, and I don't remember if it was during a Q&A or doing something he was teaching on a Wednesday night, and he essentially said, you, if you know the truth of Christianity, you are saved. And immediately, examples to the contrary come to mind. You think of people who maybe were raised Christian, and they could explain to you things in the Apostles' Creed, or explain they have lots of Bible verses memorized, they seem to know them, and yet... They have no faith. They have no evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. And we think, well, those, that person seems to know the truth, but they don't seem to actually really know God. But as I considered more deeply what T2 meant, and I talked to him, and he pointed to me to Jesus' words, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free, I came to this understanding that knowing in the Bible sense in a biblical sense, is so much more than the way we use it on a daily basis. We use it just as being able to recall something. But in the Bible, to know something is to always be so deeply acquainted and to embrace something as the truth that it actually changes your life, your mind, and your affections. So mind and affections really aren't two things to be separated. It really makes me think of a conversation I have with my math students often. I teach Eighth grade math, and when we deal with algebraic expressions, every year we get to something like X minus 5. And the kids always want to detach that subtraction sign from the 5. And so every year I make sure when we start seeing expressions like this to point at the 5 and say, what number is that? And I pick someone who I know is going to be a sucker and say, (laughs) 5. I got that one, Mr. Hoy. I got it, that's a five. And then they're so disappointed when I say, nope. And they, no, Mr. Hoy, that's a five. And I said, nope, that's not a five. And they say, but it looks like a five, Mr. Hoy. And, I, and it actually just happened this last week. And it was, you know, I had this kid on Zoom and I had one kid in it live in my class. And the girl in the class who almost never talks, she like just burst and was like, it's negative five. <laughs> that that, and so the, the conversation I always have is when I start going over this with the kids, because then the kid inevitably says, but I thought that was minus five. Yep. But you just said it's negative five. Yep. So is it negative five or is it minus five? Yep. 
Now, if you got lost in the math, Danita Bay admitted to me earlier that she didn't listen to the next five minutes because she was trying to figure out the math. <clears throat> My point is this. Wait, Paul said, set your mind on things above. Yep. But you said also King James, trans, uh, in the King James, it's translated, set your affections on things above. Yep. It's both. Okay? It's set your minds, set your affections on things above. But with all that said about the close union of mind and affections, um, I, want, I think that the translators in our modern versions have used mind helpfully because it is through our minds that our affections are shaped. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of battling sin and having some sort of inordinate desires. Maybe it's not even a bad thing. Maybe you're eating too much and you're just finding that that's all you can think of and you just wish to, man, why am I, why is this the only thing I can think of? And you, you desire to just be able to like cut yourself open and turn down that affections dial of like, oh, I just don't want to want this thing more. I want to love the things and want the things of God more and I want to want the things of the world so much less. But we don't. We don't have that ability to reach inside ourselves and, and calibrate our affections. But the way that we calibrate our affections is through the mind. It's the, through the things that we choose to, to dwell on, thing, through the things that we choose to focus on. And in fact, this is explicitly stated uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, in which Paul says, You have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. So it is through the mind that God transforms the heart and the affections. And while mind and affections are together, our minds are the instrument through which our affections are shaped. So let us heed the reminder that our mind and affections ought not never be separated. This is a temptation in, I think, uh, Reformed circles. I had a guy at my last church when I was becoming Reformed accuse me of being too nebulous in my faith. And uh, whether this was true at the time or he and I just had very different understandings of the place of knowledge, I do want to say I, it, I have seen it, I have witnessed it, that guys who are willing to do th- contemplate the mysteries of election and yet forget that the end of our election is to be a part of a body of believers that is called holiness, or those who want to consider the the mysteries of Christology to meditate on the hypostatic union with, with it, forgetting that Christ has accomplished all that he's done for his elect or considering the minutia of ecclesiology of God's plan for governing the church, forgetting that God has given us the structures of the church to nurture and care for his people. So we see this phrase, set our mind. It takes effort on our part to set our minds on Christ, but it is rooted in the supernatural realities of our changed hearts and Christ interceding on our behalf. So the next natural question is, what are we to set our minds on? We know the Sunday school answers. Jesus. The Bible. God. But this passage doesn't just leave us with vague answers. It gives us specific content of 
of what we are supposed to set our minds upon. Paul doesn't leave us alone to speculate on what things above refers to. But he demonstrates at least three very specific concrete things that we should be setting our minds on. And that specifically is Christ's person and work, his ways, and Christ's church. So let us begin by considering Christ's person and work, who he is and what he accomplished on our behalf. So if we consider, again, with verse 2 of chapter 3 being the main focus, we see a parallel of of verse 2 and the first verse and the second verse in chapter 3. Verse 1 beginning, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated. And what we see in verse 2, our main focus of this morning, is just kind of a, 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 a repetition of that exhortation rephrased to really drive the point home. But it's, the reason I point us back to verse 1 is because that's where it makes very explicit that Christ is the focus of our meditation. Christ is the focus of what we are supposed to be setting our minds on. And specifically, it says, talks about Christ who is uh, seated at the right hand of Father. Now, let's not be mistaken in reading this absolutely too literally. It does not mean that you should be considering a picture of Jesus sitting next to God. That would be sin. That would be a violation of the second commandment. And if you're confused about that, let's talk about it later. Okay, this is not a literal exhortation to consider a picture of it. It is an exhortation to consider the realities of which they represent. Specifically, who Christ is in Scripture. And we, in a sense, we see Paul pointing back to the majestic teaching that he provided in the first chapter, verses 13 through 18. This is really a wonderful, it might be some of the most clear teaching on Christology in the New Testament. It's certainly among the top most clear teaching on it, and we can't get into the details of it this morning, but to sum up what Paul says about Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished on our behalf, in verse 13 through 18 of the first chapter, we see that Paul teaches that Christ, the one through whom all things were created, and who upholds all things, who is sovereign over all things, is good in all things, and is always majestic is the same one who gave his life to redeem his people. And I'd say if you are looking for a very, very earthy way to practice this idea of set your minds on things above uh, this week, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better passage than Colossians 1, verses 13 through 18, to meditate upon and even memorize. So... When we consider the excellence of of Christ, however, we must also consider the excellencies of his ways. If we believe truly that he is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good, the same must be true of his ways. Can you imagine a person saying, yes, I believe all these things about Jesus, but then I'm choosing to do something different. Yes, I believe he's all, all good, all powerful, all wise, but I'm going to go with my way. Can you imagine that person? I hope you are imagining yourself. Okay. It's what we do every day, and it is the epitome of foolishness. But 
Hopefully, we acknowledge that Christ's ways are in so many ways supreme, and that's why we need his mercy all the more each day. But talking about meditating on Christ's ways, we see this isn't just where I went. This is directly where Paul went in his thinking as well as he's exhorting uh, the church at uh, Colossae. Uh, Really, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 through 4, 6, we see a host of practical exhortations towards the way of Christ. In chapter uh, in 3, verse 5 through 3, 11, we see him addressing those things that we need to put off, those things which are not of Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, we see a list of things that we are to put on, those things of Christ that are supposed to characterize those who follow him, love him, and seek to obey him. And yet both of these things, in verse 10, we see a very clear articulation on why this must be the case, why we must put Christ's ways at the front of our mind. And in verse 10, he says, put on the new man according to the image of Christ. Pointing out that all those things that we're to put off are the things that don't characterize Christ, that are not Christ's ways. And all those things that we are to put on are the things that characterize Christ. They are his ways. So it is not just an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts, but they are the things which characterize Christ and which he calls us to as well. So we've considered the need to set our minds on Christ, on his person and work, the need to set our minds on his ways. The third thing might not be as obvious. The third thing is to set our minds on his church. Paul specifically jumps to the church in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 3. So if we look at verse 12 through 17, broadening it a little bit, if you were to look at that as merely a list of virtues, uh, merely a list of characteristics which you're supposed to put on, I think we're missing at least part of the point. It's not just a call to righteousness, which we are called to, but it is a call to devote ourselves to one another, to the body of Christ, his church. Very clearly, focusing on verse 15, we see Paul saying, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. So this calling is not just of independent holiness, but a, a, a corporate pursuit of pursuing God as we demonstrate the transformed life in our relationships to one another. And it's for that reason that we see one another statements sprinkled throughout this whole section. And it's crucial to remember that in Scripture, salvation is never presented in individualistic terms, but we are saved into a body, into Christ's body. God's plan of redemption was always to redeem a people. And our corporate witness is a central part of his plan in spreading the gospel to all nations. Furthermore, the church is the closest thing to God's kingdom on the earth. So what does that mean for us to set our minds on the church? I think this is an especially relevant time to be considering this. Many Christians are 
highly concerned of the directions that things are headed in our country. And I'm not really here to comment on whether these people are rightly or wrong, right or wrong in their concern. But I'm guessing if you're not in a complete bubble, if you yourself aren't consumed, you've been around someone who is very consumed with the events of the day. That's all they can talk about, all they can think about. And not only are they talking about it and thinking about it, it's impacting them, it's affecting their sleep, it's affecting their attitude, it's creating anxiety and fear and worry. And I'd say these people are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, but with the wrong focus in mind. They have set their mind on the things of earth. They have been so consumed with our current moment, with the, the direction of politics, that they have lost sight of the fact that God never promised that the United States would be the leading world power throughout all world history. He has promised to uphold one institution, and that is his church, and that is the only place in which our hope should be found. And please don't hear me in any way minimizing the amazing blessing it is to have been born in the United States and to be a part of this country. It is truly a blessing, but that is not where our hope stands. And please don't hear this, as I said earlier, as a call to be dismissive or, or complacent with the things of politics. Like I said earlier, there is a place for it. But that place is below our devotion to Christ and to his church. And it is not until his kingdom is first in your mind that you can actually, in a God-honoring way, and fruitfully engage in the things of this world, which we are called to do. So in closing, I hope if you got nothing else, it's been clear that we're supposed to set our minds on things above. My girls, this is the second time they sat through this sermon today. They wanted to come with me this morning. I told them, you're going to have to listen to me preach twice. They take notes afterwards. I check their sermon. I said, how many times did I say, set your minds on things above? One said 10. The other said 20. And then they were like, probably more like 30. (laughs) But I hope that we have not missed that point this morning and that we have not walked away with thinking that this is some sort of sentimental positive thinking. Rather, there is a there is serious substance to this call. Christ, his person, his work, his ways, and his church. And that call entails serious effort, but an effort rooted in the fact that we have been redeemed, and that we've been abled by our nature to do what God has called us to do, and that we have Christ interceding on our behalf that we might accomplish this. So if I have one final exhortation for you this morning, I'd ask you to consider specific ways that this applies to you. Are there specific things that you need to repent of today? Don't let those things slip from mind. It's easy to consider it during the morning time and then just forget about it. Are there specific things you need to repent of today? And are there specific ways in which you can work to set your mind on things of Christ. My hope and prayer this morning 
is that you'll be strengthened and encouraged in this call to set your mind on Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, that you have made us anew, that you've called us to set Christ above all else in our hearts, in our minds, in our affections, and that you have not left us to ourselves to accomplish this. But through Christ's intercession, we are constantly strengthened and renewed in this call. May your spirit be at work in our hearts this day. In Christ's name we pray.